You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. There are two accounts of creation at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 explain the same thing a little bit differently. At the end of Genesis 1, which is the most concise depiction of creation, after all six days, God says, and it was, and it was good. And it says that he finishes his work. And then on the seventh day, it says that he rests. And there's no evening and there's no morning to end or, or put like a demarcation at the end of the seventh day of creation. It seems to be an endless day, a day that is still going. At the end of every other day, in the morning and the evening was the first day, in the morning and the evening was the second day. And then on the seventh day, there is no morning and evening. It just goes. And so what you realize after six days is God has made this, this earth and it's perfect, and it's right. And then he gives you something after that that says, there might be more still. Six days of creation says it was good. But that seventh day kind of creeps in. And it says, but there still might be better yet. So in Genesis 2, when they reestablish creation, they tell you, the Bible tells you about creation from a slightly different perspective. Same thing. God puts them in the garden. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply. And again, you get this sense that, wow, this is really good. And then God says, it's not good that man should be alone. And it's meant to get your attention that for a chapter and a half, every time he does something, he says, and it was. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of this perfection, God says, it's not good that man should be alone. And so then there's the story where the, uh, God starts bringing the animals to Adam, and he starts naming them. And it says that there was not found for Adam a helper fit for him. So what that text means is that somewhere in the cosmic sphere, God is saying it's not good that he's by himself. And the question is, well, okay, you did that, though. You're the one who did that. So God's like, here's Adam. And then God's like, it's not good that he's by himself. Okay, God, well, he's not by, him, he's by himself because of you. So what are you going to do? But then Adam is down there, and as animals are passing by and he's naming them, he's also looking. And he's saying, nothing that I'm seeing can fill this void that I feel. Now, here's the question we have to ask. Where does Adam even have a paradigm for what it means to be alone? He's the first person. There's no such thing yet as tragedy or cheating or broken hearts or loss or I had it and now I don't have it anymore. So there seems to be a very natural, very God-spoken desire for us to even be standing in perfection and still long for something. Because Adam has no reason, no understanding, no education, no experience that could ever make him long. All of our longing is because we've had something and we've lost it. He never had any experience yet. This is his first experience. The reality is that 
God himself is a trinity. We know this. He's Father, he's Son, he's Holy Spirit. And so Adam being made in God's image, innately in him, is the image of a God who by himself is still a community. God, when he's alone, cannot be by himself. When God speaks to himself in Genesis, he says, let us make. So when God is alone, God is the only being that's never been by himself, even when he is. So Adam, being made in his image, is sitting there feeling something that's not evil, that's not broken, which tells us that there's a kind of longing that we don't have to rebuke. There's a kind of longing that we need to lean into that it's okay to have because it comes from a God who in himself is whole. And so there's this longing for wholeness where after six days of creation, God gives you another day that's more ambiguous than the other six. And it says, those six days are good, but this seventh day of rest seems to be pointing and moving us to something even greater than those six days. And then watch what happens. At the end of Genesis 2, God creates Eve And the two stand there, and they're looking at each other, and Adam recognizes in her what he was unable to recognize in the animals, and he says, you, you are me. Now, I want to point out that it says in the text, and in most translations, that there was not a helper, and that God made Adam a helper. Everywhere else in the Bible where that word helper is used, it's speaking of God being our helper. Do a word study when you go home. Every other time in the Bible that word is used. God, the word for helper, the word for our helper is being attributed to God. So there's something about Eve, just like there's something about God, where until she showed up, Adam could not be who he is. In the same way that until God shows up, we don't know who we are. The appearance of Eve did something divine for Adam. And Adam knew who he was when he saw her. He looks at her and says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I see me. I didn't see me until I saw her. I didn't know who I was until I saw her. But now that I see her, now I know who I am. And it says that they stood there and that they were naked and not ashamed. Paradise. I was just on vacation. I had a little slice of it. Naked and not ashamed. Perfect relationship with each other. I won't ask you to raise your hands because you know this is going to be a trick question. But how many times have we thought, if I can just move to a nicer place, if I could just move out of this neighborhood, if I could just be in a relationship or in a different one, things will settle. The Garden of Eden... (laughs) And a perfect relationship between two people, knowing what happens next in Genesis chapter 3 should always remind us. The pursuit of tranquility does not in any way mean sin is not lurking at the door. The pursuit of better relationships does not mean even if you attain them, that evil is somehow not lurking, crouching at the door. They were in the perfect place with the perfect relationship and all of the things happened. Because it was in that moment 
where the next verse in the Bible, Genesis 3, says, now the serpent was more crafty and cunning than any of the beasts that God had made. And so what happens is we know the story. Satan starts talking to Eve about creation, offers her the fruit that she's not supposed to eat. She eats it, and then it says very clearly in the text, she gave some to her husband who was with her. In almost all the paintings you see of this, Eve is by herself. But if you read the text carefully, she was not by herself. Adam was standing there silent. Before we move forward into that, I want to point out that the first account of Genesis ends with the Sabbath day of rest, which makes you feel like even though it's good, there's something better still. And then the second account of creation in Genesis ends with marriage. And so again, it leaves you saying, well, everything is perfect, but now we can be fruitful and multiply. Now we can be together. Now we can populate the earth. And so here's what everyone has to know up front. God's perfection, God's kind of perfection is not completion. God's perfection pushes you into realizing this is good, but there will always be better still. His perfection is not a completion, but it launches you into this infinite relationship with him where things always grow and clarity becomes more clear and intimacy becomes more intimate and romance becomes more romantic and fulfillment becomes more fulfilling. There's never a moment with God where you can say of him and his goodness, it is finished. The kind of perfection that he creates is a perfection that launches you deeper into perfection. So our desire to see our lives get to a completed state is not what God has for us. So think about this from Think about this from your enemy's perspective, the person in your life that wreaks the most havoc on your life. Creation tells us that we should never look at that person and say it is finished. The world outside of this building needs us to walk out of this building and look at them and say, it is not finished. There's still hope for you. There's still possibility for you. More can still happen. Love will never allow something to become final. Love always says there's still a chance. It's like the movie Dumb and Dumber with Jim Carrey. Is there a chance we could end up dating? Well, one in a million. So you're saying there's a chance, right? There's always a chance with love. And this this thought that it can always be better still, this isn't a negative thing with God because the two words that we're using to show how it can get better is Sabbath rest and consummation. Intimacy and rest is what God will keep giving us so things can keep excelling into more perfection. But that's not just for us to enjoy. That's for us to look at the brokenness of the world and say it's not finished. There's still possibility here. In this room, when we come here on Sundays, we should be learning to be possibility creators. Our role as a church is to be possibility creators. We need to look at situations where people feel the death sentence has been given. The gavel has hit. This is it. Judgment is set. And we should be the ones to say, not so fast. 
it can be better still. You can be better still. Our relationship can be better still. There is no finality when God's love shows up. Everything is redeemable when his love shows up, amen? And when it's redeemed and you look at it, it can still be better still. He's infinite. You cannot exhaust him. For all of eternity, you cannot exhaust what he has to offer. It's always better still. We need to be the place where people walk in here or sense it on us when we're not here. That there's not angry judgment on their lives or accusation over their lives, but they leave saying, when I'm with them, I feel like something's still possible. I feel like something's still open. And if they can't believe it for themselves, we should be the ones to believe it for them. Because his love in my personal life, like standing in front of you, if if I'm your leader, this church is marked by the idea that God says when it's over, it ain't over. Accusation is the enemy's tool because accusation says, Dan, you've made some mistakes. It is finished. Accusation ends possibility. Accusation says, this is who you are now. And here's how we are as a culture. We are always triggered by the last big event that happened. And we now say, that's how my life is. So here's the reality. You can accuse your life in a positive way that's still very evil. You can accuse your life in a negative way that's very evil. And here's what I mean. In the negative sense, you make a mistake. Something happens to you. You do something to somebody else. And it seems like the consequences are the kind of consequences that don't go away very fast. Can I get a witness from somebody this happens once in a while? And you want to say, it is finished, I'm going to eat this now for the rest of my life. And Genesis 1 and 2 is saying, not so fast. Because when Jesus said it is finished, things didn't end, they began. This is why he says, I am Alpha and Omega. Because when I say it is finished, it's just starting also. That's why the minute he said it is finished, you would think that the church was done. But the minute Jesus said it is finished, it launches the church into mission. There's something about the completion of God that opens up possibility for greater completion. This is why Jesus can look at a thief on the cross and say, you, in the state you're in right now, you're with me in paradise. Because the man on the cross looking at him saying, I'm a hot mess. Jesus is saying, this cross, your mistakes, they no longer are final on you. So for you, paradise is the realization that all kinds of new things can happen right now today. We need to give that to the world. They need to hear that. They need to stop coming into the church and being defensive or hearing us out there. We're pretty on our good behavior here, but when we're out there and we're in those traffic jams or we're faced with behaviors that we disagree with, Are the people leaving those conversations saying with Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber, so wait a minute, God, you're saying there is a chance. Can we be those people? Can we be better than the movie Dumb and Dumber? (laughs) 
Thank you. There's a chance. (laughs) But in a good way, when good things happen, we have an obsession with making them have to last forever. Something good happens and we say, it is finished. In the same bad way that when bad things happen, we say it. Now that I finally got this job, now everything's going to be good. No, it probably won't. Adam, now that I got married, things are going to be great. Okay, Adam. Like eight minutes later, he's like, nope, nope, overestimated that one. We have to stop saying it is finished. His love leaves the door open where when things go right, be ready for another kind of season. Because our life is not about just getting to some level of good and then hoping it levels out. Our life here is not about our life. It's about the life of the world. So when things go good for you, it's because somebody out there needs things to be going good for for you so that you can give from that reservoir to them. And when things go bad for us, it's probably because somebody out there needs things to be going bad for me so they can see this kind of joy in and out of season. This is why the psalmist can say, the day is yours and so is the night. Light is as dark to you. Or the other way around. Darkness is as light. That's what I meant. Satan says the other one. We need to be the kind of people who experience the fact that when you're in the pitch black seasons of life, it's as bright as any other time because his love is like that. And they need to hear that. Everything that happens to us is not so our lives level out to some level of good. It's so we can keep giving and being a gift to the world that doesn't deserve it. And the reason I can say that is because none of us in here do either. But when sin enters the world, all of a sudden, we start to say, I'm not my, am, am, I, am I my brother's keeper? Adam and Eve. They stop working the ground, and they start using creation to cover themselves. This is their first response to sin. They accuse themselves by hiding and covering their nakedness. Adam accuses God by saying, the woman you gave me made me do this. He wasn't accusing Eve. He was accusing God, the woman you gave me, he says. Adam's like, 10 minutes ago, I was by myself and everything was fine. You say I need someone, she shows up, and now this happens. And then Eve blames the serpent, which is really an unexhaustible metaphor for my circumstances made me do it. This person made me react that way. Blaming the serpent is blaming creation. It's blaming circumstances. It's, it's saying that what I did wrong was in reaction to a greater wrong, so I should be absolved of what I did wrong because the wrong done to me was greater, and that's why I responded this way. Does that make sense? We've all said that. We've all done that. Well, I wouldn't have said that if you didn't say that first. That goes back to an ancient evil of covering myself at your expense, using you to cover me. We cover ourselves in life. Some of us, like the younger brother in the story of the prodigal son, we cover ourselves by pursuing freedom, exploring myself, 
I'm going to go be my own person. I'm going to go find out who I really am. I'm going to go throw caution to the wind. I'm going to sow my wild oats, whatever analogy we want to use. And we, and we cover our brokenness by trying to be so free that we can act like the brokenness isn't nagging there every single day. But then we also, some of us, cover ourselves like the prodigal son's older brother. We obey every rule. Our goal is to not live like him. Our goal is to be ethical and moral and right and all of this good kind of behavior modification living. And the freedom option, it ends up in a pigsty. And the, I'm going to just be so good that I can somehow kind of kid myself into thinking the brokenness is gone. That ends up being the kind of person who can't celebrate when the pigsty person comes home. So what good was that? You were so good that when your younger brother finally comes back from the pigsty that you've accused him from being in, you can't be excited when he's accepted. So good on you for all the good decisions you've made. In John chapter 5, there's a man who's sick, and the, the whole chapter indicates that he's done something wrong in his life, and that's why he is the way he is. And Jesus walks up to him, and he says, do you want me to heal you? And the man's response is, there's no one here to put me in the water. Do you want me to heal you? There's no one here to put me in the water. He responds out of his victimization. He's so formed by being victimized. He's so formed by the mistakes that he's made that he's imposing on other people so he doesn't have to say to Jesus, yes, I want to be healed, because if he says, yes, I want to be healed, he has to face the reality that he might not. So he immediately accuses Jesus says, do you want me to heal you? And the man says, there's no one here to put me in the water. And Jesus says, stand up and walk right now. You're healed. He walks away with his mat, and the Pharisees, like the older brother, they say, wow, you've been paralyzed your whole life, and now you're walking. Why are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath? Why? Because they're covering their brokenness by thinking that if I follow all the rules, I won't end up like that guy. I need to be healed. All of it is a mess. All of it is trying to be bad or trying to be good as a way of ignoring the fact that I'm broken. Until the woman with the issue of blood. And she says, I've tried everything. None of it works. I am now going to push my way through my accusers. I'm going to push my way through my embarrassment. I'm going to push my way through my vulnerability. I don't care. I need to touch his garments. And she's one of the first people to say, I'm naked, I'm bleeding, and I am ashamed, but I'm still coming after you. We need a heart like that woman. And here's where I'll tell you, here's where it comes from. Please don't let this be a trigger for you, what I'm about to say. Please hear this for the theological truth that it is. Women in the Bible are not, first and foremost, a type of the church. Women in the Bible are, first and foremost, also what the image of God looks like. I thought some ladies would say, finally, thank you. Not just the image of the church. They're also what the image of God looks like. We can't see the image of God until we look at men and women together. 
Mary has the kind of heart that God wants his church to have. Mary is the true and better Eve. We've been doing road trip and we've been finding Jesus in the Old Testament. On this one, we need to see Mary in the Old Testament. Mary is the true and better Eve. Mary succeeded in doing for the church what Eve failed to do for creation. Hear me. Hear me. Because this has everything to do with the song that Stephanie just sang about the Holy Spirit, and it's why we had to interrupt, and it's why we're going to sing that song again in T-minus six and a half minutes. I would have said five, but then people are like, well, I'm going to time that. So six and a half is confusing, so you probably won't. Now you will. I shouldn't have done that. Mary in Luke 1.38, she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Why is that an amazing statement? Why is that one of the most unbelievable statements in the Bible? Because God, when he created everything in Genesis 1, he said, let there be. Let there be light. Let there be birds. Let there be beasts. Let there be seed. Everything was let there be. And creation responds to let there be by saying, let me have. And Eve took of the fruit and she ate. Mary is the first person, the first moment of creation to respond back to God and echo what he said to create. God said, let there be. And Mary says, let it be done to me according to your word. She responds. She echoes God back to himself, which is what an image of God does. Unfortunately, when I stand in front of a mirror, it rightly shows me myself, and I don't like it. especially after vacation. I liked getting it there, but I didn't like it now when I look in the mirror. When God hears Mary say, let it be done to me according to your word, God says, that's what I've been looking for. I just heard myself. And so what does he do? In that moment, he says, the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you and give you something that you or anybody else here cannot give you. The Holy Spirit is going to hover over your womb, which is a virgin womb. So what do we have? In Genesis, at the very beginning, you have a formless and void earth, and the Spirit hovers over the formless and void earth. And by the word of God, things are created. And then, for the second time in the Bible, the Spirit hovers over a formless and void womb. And God puts the creator there. She has an experience with the Holy Spirit that puts Jesus where there's nothing but formless and void realities. And what does Jesus do to Mary? Stretches her stomach, stretches her body, stretches her to literally the breaking point. Ladies, if you had a baby, you know what I'm talking about. Thank the Lord I haven't, so I'm glad I can just talk about this apart from having to have the experience but pushes you to the breaking point, literally the breaking point. When are we going to be so filled with Jesus here that we have stretch marks? When are we going to be so filled with Jesus that we, when we walk out of here and we walk to somebody else, we're so full of him that something dead in somebody else leaps? 
When are we going to be so filled with him? Mary, she's not asking for prophecy. She shows up to Elizabeth because she wants to know if Elizabeth is pregnant, then I know mine is from God. And the minute Mary walks into Elizabeth, Elizabeth says, the mother of my Lord just showed up. She went to Elizabeth for help, and she ended up blessing Elizabeth just because she's bearing Jesus. She walks into the temple, and Anna and Simeon can't help but prophesy. Mary didn't go there to get a word. She just went, but she's so stretched and so filled with the Holy Spirit and so filled with the word of God that when she walks in, things in other people unlock. Mary conceived, was pregnant with, gave birth to, and mothered possibility himself. We need to be the mother of possibility here. We need to be the place where when people come in or when we go into their environment, they feel that there's still a chance. They feel that if they're hanging on to false fulfillment, what's in us breaks that down. And if they're hanging on to false accusation and doubt over their own life, what we have in here breaks it down. How do we know this is the heart God is looking for? Because just before the Holy Spirit shows up in the book of Acts, Luke writes in Acts 1.14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary. Together with the women and Mary. Saying the women covered Mary. They were all together, the men and the women and Mary. So the question when you're reading it is, Luke, why would you need to delineate Mary when you already said the women were there? Because Luke wants you to know, when this woman goes to a place, when she goes to Elizabeth's house, the Holy Spirit shows up. When she goes into the temple, ask Anna, ask Simeon, the Holy Spirit shows up. So now that she's in this upper room, who's about to show up? That heart let it be to me according to thy word, is the location where the Holy Spirit pours himself out. That's why Luke wants you to know Mary was there. Because the woman, the church with that attitude, the church that has the beating heart that says, I am your servant, be it done to me according to your word. That's the place where possibility shows up. I wanna show you a painting I want you to look at this painting, because it's incredible. And I'll tell you what I love about it the most. First of all, just sit there with it for a minute, because it's amazing without me talking. But here's Eve, moments after Genesis 3. And here's Mary, moments after she got impregnated with Jesus by the Holy Spirit. I want to show you in this painting, because this painting reflects the gospel better than almost anything I've ever seen. Mary... Well, first, let's look at Eve. She's holding the fruit. She's still holding the cause of her condition. Do you see that? She's holding, she's still in her bad behavior, let's say. She's still in her, whatever word you want to put on it. She's not ethical. She's not moral. Whatever the fun things that we like to tell people. She's still holding it, and evil is still wrapped around her legs. Is Mary grabbing for the apple? Nope. Is Mary pointing out the serpent? No. 
Mary stepping on the serpent for her, doing for Eve what Eve cannot do for herself. But look at this. Mary is essentially saying, Eve, touch this fruit and you'll drop the one you're holding. I don't need to talk to you about your bad behavior. I just need you to feel him moving. I need to tell you how wrong you are. You just need to feel him moving. What if we were that kind of place? I need to point out everything you're doing wrong. Just walk in this room and feel Jesus kick. Walk in this room and feel him move. I remember when Sophia punched me. I had my hand on Jacqueline's stomach, and Sophia punched me, and it scared me to death. And I was like, oh, my gosh, there's an actual person in there. I feel like some people come here, and it's the idea of pregnancy. They need to feel him kick and say there's really a person there. That's what we need to be for the world. We need Jesus so stretching us and so in us and so in our midst that when people encounter us, they feel the fruit of life himself move and then they drop the fruit they're holding. They don't care about the serpent around their leg anymore. They felt Jesus move. So when when Stephanie starts to sing, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. We need to be the kind of people who say, God, we are here to be servants. And we're here to do according to what you say, no matter what it costs us. And when we are that kind of place, and we get pregnant with God in that way, we don't need to preach at people. We just need them to come and feel Jesus kick. Maybe some of you haven't felt him kick like that in a while. And like Eve, you're standing there and here. I just want to point this fact out because it's very important. Adam said to Eve, you're the mother of all living. That's why when Eve had her next kid, she thought he was going to be the one. But every time Eve had a baby, it wasn't Jesus yet. How is Mary the true and better Eve? Because the Bible says over and over and over again, in Christ is life, and everything in life is held together in him. Amen? So when she's carrying around the one in whom all of life exists, Mary becomes the true and better Eve. She truly is the mother of all living. Because in Christ, all is living. And Mary is essentially looking at Eve saying, now you can live into your name. Because of this fruit, you can still live into your name. Your name is no longer marred by your sin. Your name is no longer marred by the mistakes you made. Your name is no longer marred by the fruit you ate. It's about, it's by, your name is now the fruit I'm about to push out. We need to be that for people. Letting them know there's still possibility in your life. And we should not be the ones who are always quick to accuse. We should be the ones who are quick to try to find the one strand of hope and say, Feel him kick. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.